So, um, one of the things that um, I'm with as I begin uh, this uh, reflection this evening um, is the encouragement to not be too busy to get where to where to wherever we think we're going <laughs> to whatever goal we've set ourselves uh, in case we miss the richness and the potential of uh, what we're meeting and what we're wi- with right now mm. and uh, in, in um, many ways, one of the very powerful um, experiences of being on retreat is that it, uh, it uh, confronts us over and over again with the reality of what we're with uh, in each moment, in each day. And then we can see the tension we create between how it is and where we feel we need to get or, or where we feel we, we haven't got to and, and then begin to judge ourselves or undermine ourselves because we set the bar too high or we had so many expectations or we've read so many books about what the right experience should be. We want to be more quickly free of our problems, the things that confront us. We hear these teachings, practices about emptiness, deathlessness, non-attachment, and that all sounds really good. That's where we'd like to be. And yet we might find instead that we, we have a day where anything but empty very frustrating, mundane human emotions. (laughs) Another day of a restless mind. So being, sort of adjusting our, our aim to aim to be more present with how it is rather than Undermining, undermining our capacity to be here through unconsciously having a, a, this, this sense of a goal of, of where, we're get, where we're always getting to. Ajahn Chah used to say, uh, don't be in too much of a hurry to get rid of your desires and your aversions. Because without any desire or aversion, there's no path. There's no practice. Without any... Uh, challenge, there's no awakening. Without any suffering, there's no compassion. There's no depth within our humanity. So we, we you know, without any manure, there's no garden. <laughs> so or another thing he would say is right where it's hot, it's cold. Right where there's suffering, there's Liberation, right where there's sangsara, there's nirvana. It's impossible to have one without the other. You can't have a Buddha without Mara. You can't have the light without the dark. You can't have. Uh, this is uh, the, the interplay, the the uh, 
the, of the different aspects of our experiencing, that which is, uh, you know, what we're challenged by is the very thing that can actually become the ground for our awakening, is the ground for our awakening. It's a beautiful, one of my favorite um, poems begins with the line, Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching but just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. This is the beginning of a poem by Mark Napo. In many ways, I find this very profound because it really talks to the art of contemplation, which is really the the deeper aspect of meditation, where meditation begins to move beyond a technique uh, that we use to you know, to calm and to steady and to transcend, to let go, where it becomes something that's more uh, more of a, a holding, being able to hold and come into relationship with our human experience in order to contemplate it, rather than being so quickly to jump beyond it. So this uh, sense of uh, being the, the, the art of contemplation, being like a steady, soft and sturdy, steady home into which real things can land, into which our experience can be. Which comes about at the beginning of the poem, having loved enough and lost enough, having had so many experiences in this world, we uh, always feel that perhaps we haven't had enough, we need some more experiences, but at a certain point, we realize that we've, we've had a whole range of experiences uh, that have brought about the sense of being maybe loved and also the experience of having loss, the human experience, and at a certain point, Instead of keep seeking, we have the uh, opportunity or in this uh, way of uh, deepening our relationship with the reality of our life, we have this, this need to stop. So what brings us here? We need to stop just in order to really make contact with that which just keeps driving us on. And then in the stopping, what we're doing in the stopping is really generating and cultivating the capacity to be with the reality of our experience, that which we're busy constantly running away from, jumping over, and even using meditation to try and circumvent the challenge of being human. And it could catapult beyond it all somehow into some ethereal heavenly realm or some subtle jhana or some nibbanic bliss. And I have to deal with this messy, confusing, difficult, depressing, <laughs> doubtful experience of being human. <laughs> <laughs> 
where most of the time I hardly know what's going on and just sort of running a little bit behind the game. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, being able to stop and realize that what we're with is the way of awakening. It's not in spite of, it's not somehow in the way of awakening. It is very much the very fuel, the very means through which our maturing, our awakening, the integration of our awakening happens. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. So slowly and slowly, with this capacity, another way of talking about mindfulness, we talked about the training of mindfulness as uh, the applying of attention, foundations of mindfulness to the breath, to the body. Another way we can talk about mindfulness is the development of a capacity. Mindfulness coupled with this term that we've been using, Yonisomani Sakara, which means to not only bring attention to, but to reflect upon, to contemplate, to gather into the womb of awareness of presence for the sake of contemplation, for the sake of understanding, and for the sake of transformation. So when in the art of becoming more real and gathering in our experience, we can apply uh, this sense of... Uh, holding presence to, holding awareness to, containing and being with how it is for the sake of illumination and transformation. So we've had an opportunity on this retreat to really see what we're coming into contact, what our humanity is, what our experience is. And for, you know, for many of us, it's been extremely challenging, actually. It's not by any means all light and bliss. A lot of really quite difficult energies and moods and feelings and storylines and uh, this uh, momentum that we've been talking about, the karma, the tendencies, these deep, deep, more deeply rooted tendencies that often we don't really want to be with, that we skip over. Some of these tendencies, Another way of talking about the, the, the karma or the tendency of our life is, uh, uh, is uh, this word sankara or, or the patterning, the conditioning. A lot of what we're with in meditation is the result of what has been conditioned before, what has been created before, not always by ourselves. <laughs> Often very, a lot of it not by ourselves. We just inherited it. It's huge momentum of what has been gone before, what karmas have been created before. And, and we, as we sit, we start to find ourselves feeling into them, experiencing this, this, uh, this sankara, this karmic formation, these patterns, these tendencies, very powerful. So a lot of the time, we're having to actually learn how to be with the, the different tendencies that we experience. Some of them can be very sublime and light and lovely and, and uh, joyous. But some of them can be very dark and heavy and difficult. Some of them, when they appear, are very, very faint, like some, sometimes 
um, metaphor is that they're like lines drawn on water. They appear like, a, for example, one might feel a sense of irritation. Something happens. Maybe you're queuing for lunch and then someone just butts in front somehow or picks up something you were just going for, you know, gets there first. It's in the way when you're trying to get a hot water for your cup of tea and you might just feel a little bit of irritation. And if you're mindful, it just knows, oh, you know, there's irritation, oh. And then if you don't have too much of a superego that tries to repress it and pretend actually, no, it's not really there, I am really love this person and please can you all go first before me, I don't mind waiting at the back of the line, you know, sort of spiritual ego that will compensate for the fact that we actually feel really irritated. If we're very mindful, we'll be actually more and more honest and look at the mind and say, yeah, there's irritation here. But it might be just a very momentary appearance. You know, if it's uncomfortable, we apply a little bit of mindfulness and it, and, you know, it dissolves and we get our cup of tea and, and carry on or whatever. And some of, the, <clears throat> some of the, the momentum of the tendencies that we have, that we've inherited, that we're with, they have a little bit more energy in them. Perhaps they, they've been conditioned in more deeply. Perhaps they come from a, diff, a, a deeper place of wounding. Or perhaps there is an obsessive patterns and thinking uh, patterns that we've, we've put a lot of energy in or, or we, we've lived just distracting ourselves all the time. So when we sit, some of the patterns will come up and we might apply mindfulness, we'll see maybe a sense of um, worry, aversion, resistance. We apply mindfulness, but it doesn't just disappear. It has a little bit more energy in it, so then we've got a little bit more work to do. We might be with it for a bit longer and a bit longer, and this... It's a bit deeper. Sometimes it's uh, it's uh, the analogy is like a line drawn in sand. There's a there, there's a bit more of a, a groove there for the, the the for the 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 mind's energy to run along. A bit more of a deeper pattern, a deeper sankara, deeper tendency. So then we we might you know be with that for for a sitting or two, and then we starts to fade, and you know mind becomes more buoyant again. But some of these these sankharas are very profound, are very deep, like lines drawn in stone. They have they they have a very profound imprint on the jitta, on the heart, on the mind. And we'll touch these in, in these kinds of experiences, in these retreats, we'll, we'll start to, to touch, maybe not the full depth, but we'll begin to get the flavor. And it will, it, they will, they'll, they'll feel very familiar. You know, it can be very, uh, a, a sense of maybe despair or, or profound sense of restlessness or, 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 or fear. So it's not just a superficial worry, but it start, it feel, we feel a whole deeper sense of wobble, fear, a lack of groundedness. And sometimes they're so pervasive, we don't even see them for years because they're so much who we are. 
We have no distance on them at all. They're just, they're, they're just me. I'm, you know, we, we, can't, we, we, we have no, actually no space. It took me years to begin to see how much lack of uh, worth that I carried. It was so much me, I had no sense it was even a conditioning. And then little by little through my practice, I began to be able to, to really get some perspective and feel, initially just feel the all-pervasive kind of, self, of self-aversion is too strong a word, but a lack of ground or a lack of rootedness or a sort of a, a, a lack of feeling uh, comfortable in my own skin somehow. The undermining of, of, of confidence, not very confident. And then, as I started to, uh, be, you know, you know, or, or the feeling of just not really wanting to be here, kind of in the deep sense of resistance in my incarnation. Not all the time, but quite quite pervasive. And then something would come along. Someone might say something a bit negative or critical and it would trigger, you know, just a very profound sense of disturbance, self-doubting. It's a, it's a very common tendency, actually, and I don't know in the American culture, but British culture. It's kind of the Irish culture. It's, actually, my family's from Ireland, so... But these kind of inheritances that uh, that we, you know, inherit that that get sort of um, conditioned when we're very young. Uh, lack of uh, real ground, a lack of belonging, a lack of sense of of you know, one has a place. And you know, first, when we start to see these patterns, as I said, at first we don't see them because they're so pervasive. We're just actually reacting to them, compensating for them, or, or, or overwhelmed by them. But we don't really get a perspective. And then little by little, with the mindfulness, as it increases, one starts to actually get some perspective and see, it can start to see it as an energy, as an effect, as a as a, you know, some of the narratives, the, the mental thinking patterns that can maybe go with some of these deeper tendencies. And I started to, to just see how much, you know, I would do something or say something and, and then automatically there would be this sabotaging voice, oh, that wasn't good enough or you didn't do it well enough or you should have done better. Uh, who do you think you are? You know, or, or a, a kind of a sense of apology. <laughs> and then one day I was—I've been practicing quite a long time, and you know, I, it, it's ironic. I think it's a massive compensation to actually do a lot of public speaking. <laughs> so I had a lot of chance to look at that sense of self in this kind of context. And one day I, I had uh, had to give a talk. And when I walked out from it, this, 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 and I've been working with this pattern for quite a while, and 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 really contemplating, and this huge kind of 
voice came up that was so judgmental. It was so, it was, uh, it was unbelievable. It was just like, that was just so bad. You've got to go and kill yourself. <laughs> I mean, it was actually funny, but it, well, it wasn't because it was, it was a real destructive. It was like a self-destructive you know, so it was a, it was like a knife that just. But it was a, it was the first time that I really, in a way, saw it without becoming it and without being swept away. I just really heard it because it was so extreme. <laughs> just really heard. I thought, wow, that is amazing. <laughs> I mean, it was horrible. <laughs> I mean, it was a horrible feeling tone to it. But it was amazing just to see it. You know, just to see that pattern. And then, you know, it began to allow me an opportunity. And as I worked more deeply, uh, not only through meditation, but through therapeutic work, as I kind of worked more deeply and began to get more to the root of it, I began to um, see how it was not only personal to do with own, maybe early developmental processes and um, context I grew up in, but I could also begin to see that some of it was like ancestrally inherited. Yeah, it's uh, culturally inherited. Mm, a sense of displacement and and not really having a, a rootedness. And as I've contemplated, I'm just talking about one tendency. There's just one. There are others. <laughs> <laughs> these are profound. These are I mean, this work we're doing here to meet some of these tendencies that feel very personal at first. They actually they're very collective. They have different. Each of us will have a different root and a different flavor depending on our family, our inheritance, the culture, the historic um, narrative of our class or race or. Yeah, there'll be these very profound inheritances that, uh, that you know, it's good to know that they're not personal, actually. We can, we can start to contemplate. And as I, I started to really work with this, this sense, it became more and more clear how collectively there's, there's such a lack of rootedness, embodiment and rootedness and ease within our body, within our with, with the earth, with, with, within our humanity. Yeah. There's a sort of like a war that goes on. We're at war with, with the body, war with ourselves, war with the earth. And, and we begin, we, we expect to feel, you know, we're going to be peaceful <laughs> when we're in this constant state of conflict, constant state of judgment, not accepting the, the, our humanity, uh, our limitations. It's very, you know, it's very painful. So when we start to sit here, if we use meditation, instead of really, in a, some ways, coming to terms and being able to, Zajan Chah said, not to be too much of a hurry to skip beyond some of these territories, but to actually really pay them due respect to use the training of the steadying of mind, not to identify and get lost and overwhelmed, but to begin to be able to, as uh, 
one might say, to, to be able to have the, the healing begins to come about when we have the capacity and the power of awareness to actually begin to feel into the original wounding to our sensitivity. Because this is really what the symptoms that we experience of depression or anxiety or fear or, or self-doubt some of these deeper patterns, it's, it's often really connected to the, the, uh, the some level, somewhere along the way, either in our personal development or a historical uh, inheritance, genetic inheritance, familial inheritance, ancestral inheritance. Tremendous wounding to our connection, to our body, to our earth, to our culture, to our place, to our, maybe our land displacement. This this is a very difficult wound that we carry. It's very hard to tolerate, to feel sometimes the depth of how how much... And at some point, this practice really helps in that when we see that it feels very personal, but in a way it's not so personal, when we can see it like that, it actually helps us to tolerate. Not to just dwell in pain unnecessary, not to just be lost, but for the sake of releasing and transforming and healing. So this other dimension of, of mindfulness and awareness, as we start to apply it, can have this capacity for transformation and healing. It's a very, um, really lovely documentary which really illustrates this. If you ever have a chance to see, it's French and it's called The Weeping Camel. Some of you might have seen it. If you haven't, then, then it really illustrates this pr- principle of the healing power of awareness. It's set in the Mongolio, Mongolian uh, plateau desert. And it's, it's, a, it's a French filming crew that's gone in and they're making a documentary about a family, a nomadic family. And the family depend very much in terms of being able to move around on the camels that they have. And in that kind of culture, in that situation, the animals and the people a very symbiotic relationship. It's, it's uh, very, very close. And one of the camels is due to give birth, and it's a big deal because it affects the whole ability for the family and the tribe to move around. So they're waiting for the, for the mother camel to give birth, and everyone's waiting. But the birth turns out to be extremely difficult. It's a very, very painful birth, and eventually the, the, the calf has to be pulled from the mother, and you see this stunning white calf get born. It's beautiful, gorgeous, and the calf struggles to stand up. It's all wobbly and slippery. <laughs> And the mother, because she experienced so much pain in the birth, she rejects the calf. You know, she doesn't want, she can't, can't even go near, it's too painful. And so you see her walk away. And you, and you start to, to see the whole family, 
they're very aware of what's happening and they start, it starts to become a dilemma for the whole family. We, we somehow, we've got to resolve this. So they try all sorts of things, but it just doesn't work. The, the, the mother doesn't want the calf. And, and meanwhile, the calf's obviously going to die if the, if, if, she, if, if the calf can't get nourishment. So then you see the two young sons of the family, they decide to go off on a mission and they, they, they go to the next village and they go and get the local... He's a school teacher, but he's really like the local shaman. And they get him to come over and check the scene out. You know, they need some help. So he, he comes over and he and he's kind of looks, he looks at the mother and he looks at the, the calf and he sits there and he pulls out an instrument and just starts to play. And the, and the family just gather and they're just sitting there. They're just sitting there together. And you know, just and they just start to focus on the mother, you know, and the calf's just sitting there, and 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 he just starts to play the instrument, and then the the uh, human mother of the two boys gets up and she goes to the camel and she just starts to gently put her hand where the camel's heart is, and she's just there, and she starts to just sing to the camel. There's just this melodic kind of uh, beautiful song with a lot of pathos in it and then you just at a certain point you just see the camel start to cry these big tears just come out and uh, and then and then at a certain point the camel moves over to the calf and the calf starts to suckle so it's very subtle and beautiful process with this kind of power of of just this applying admittedly there, there was the song <laughs> But applying this power of attention, awareness, this is really the this is the this is the dimension of the jitta and the heart. When it's it's not only in in its you know, in its emptiness is also resonant, has a resonance, is able to feel with and touch, and has this almost transformative or shamanic power to it. In our in our in our meditation, it's it's not <clears throat> so much that we maybe necessarily have to figure out the detail of why we feel what we feel. Although that is a journey, and it is it can be a very important journey. It was an important journey for me. But to re- recognize that actually, when say one of these tendencies arrive, that it's connected with pain like this poem being a, sto- a soft and sturdy home, that the work is really, we can just begin to trust that there can be this power within awareness itself. Just gently holding, steadying, receiving, this yoni sakara, receiving into the womb of awareness. It's the, that's the, that's the uh, meaning of uh, this, uh, this phrase, which coupled with mindfulness, coupled with attentiveness, the ability to welcome whatever tendency, whatever sankhara, whatever karmic formation, whatever conditioning is arising, particularly that which is difficult, to hold it within the, the container of contemplation and really not doing a whole lot else, but just being able to stay steady there, just like that mother holding the uh, the hand on the on the heart of the the camel, taking the breath, 
breathing into what's present, breathing out. In this way, there's a, there's a kind of a, a possibility, not only for there to be some space, but as we would often speak about it in, the, in our monastic training, it was called releasing the orphans of consciousness, <laughs> this practice of, of, of awareness and mindfulness in this way, heartfulness. What starts to happen when we practice and we start to open up, then some of these things come to light. It's like they want to come to light. They want to be heard. They want to be felt. They want to be noticed. The irritations, the irritabilities, the, the dark feelings, the lost feelings. And as soon as they, they start to, to show their ugly faces, <laughs> distorted faces, we just sort of slam the door on them, push them away. Oh, it's just feeling, <laughs> and it, you know, and that's true. It is just feeling. It's it's painful feeling, but you know, just being able to to realize there's a power in being able to be a soft and sturdy home to meet, not to. Not to, and it's a very fine skill in this training of actually holding attention where we're not uh, not identifying, not getting lost in the, the the experience, and not neither pushing away, but just staying steady with it, steady with it, taking awareness, the breath, and in this is very very powerful, very subtle, very gentle, but it can really begin to help some of these deeper. Patterns, these deeper sense of what we assume to be ourself, the unconfident self, the wobble, the the anxious self, the depressed self. It begins to allow some of those trapped um, inherited energetic being, they're like beings, they're, 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 they're like energy forms, beings, that allow, begins to allow them to, to escape, to go back into the light, to go back into, to be dissolved. That's what they're seeking. You know, we're just... However, it's not, it's not always... easy to do that. Yes, it takes, um, sometimes it's not always appropriate to, just talking with some uh, practitioners today, it's not always appropriate to maybe stay with that which is really, really painful. To realize we can develop skill. And one of the things really important in this practice, whether we're doing it on retreat or whether as we go home and start to integrate the practice, is that we learn how to maintain some well-being, some strength of capacity to do that work. So that if we're with something that's quite difficult, we we don't only have one strategy, which is sort of like just tough it out. You know, and in the process, just find ourselves getting overwhelmed or losing faith in our capacity to actually do this practice. So realizing sometimes we can, we might meet the edge of some of these, uh, these states of mind some of these experiences, some of the feelings, some of these tendencies that are actually quite difficult and realizing actually we can sometimes, it's not a repression just to say, I haven't got the strength now to be with this. 
I need to just move away and regroup. I need to take a walk. I mean, there's not a lot of places we can move away to in a retreat center, let's face it, but you know, maybe I just need to go rest for a while or just to ease off the intensity or to take a walk or to o- even to open my eyes. You know, if I'm really caught up in something that feels quite intense, just to open my eyes and just relax. Or if we're at home and we're struggling and on the edge of overwhelm, the, to, in the mindfulness we can really start to recognize that this, this feels like on an, on an edge for me. I need some more help, maybe being a friend or, you know, or, or find some encouragement in a, in a positive way. Or bring to mind a, a more positive um, perspective. It's not always going to be like this. Or, or sometimes considering, sometimes when, I, you know, when we work in our work um, where we are in South Africa, I feel, um, often feel very overwhelmed there because in, in the relational field there is so much trauma from what's happened from all the hundreds of years of colonization, apartheid, very, very strange effects that that generates in a whole society. And just being there, a real sense sometimes of just a low-lying pain. (laughs) So someone was asking about becoming more sensitive. Yes, in meditation we do become more sensitive, actually. And it's a problem sometimes. (laughs) And that's why the strength, developing a strength of mindfulness and a refuge is very, very important. Yeah. Getting a sense of boundaries sometimes can be very important too. Psychological boundaries, knowing when to withdraw, knowing when to how to place things. But in in a situation, sometimes we're working in a, in a, some of the work we've done with with just. Uh, unbelievable obstacles that can come along and really trip one up and activate. It's not only tripping you up, but activating one into one's own patterns of hopelessness and rage and upset and frustration, pain. And then it all gets very messy. You don't know what's yours and what's in the field. And, and uh, I start to think about someone like Mr. Mandela. You know, I just think, well... He had the most horrendous thing that he had to live through, and in his in his life, he he uh, he landed up. I mean, he just had this amazing ability to meet the most daunting circumstances and then turn them around to his advantage. Whether it was training to be a lawyer in a situation where that training was really not available to him because of being racially marginalized uh, due to the apartheid system and then defending and not only training but then defending himself in the most if you ever read his book long walk to freedom it's really worth reading and you, you, re- you get to see the kind of mind he had it's phenomenal defending himself at court under the death sentence and turning it around to get people to become to really look more ethically what are they doing exactly actually then his journey through prison 
you'll be able to command such a sense of respect from from people, and and you know then and then for a whole nation, if someone after twenty seven years living in a the most, um, I mean, it, the sort of situation would crush a regular person, and then being able to come out of that with no bitterness, really. I'm sure there was bitterness, but chose to, to, to uh, encourage a whole nation to a consciousness that, you know, still, although it has many problems, but still. Uh, you know, still enabled it to make a relatively peaceful transition. It's a power, not not only of him, many others, but you know, he was the leading light. So, you know, think of sometimes when we feel really overwhelmed, just being able to, or even nearer to home. Uh, we have uh, someone in our local village, Abigail Tleko, who who's just this tremendous life. She uh, <clears throat> she she said that she when she grew up, uh, she um, her her main companion was her dog. Her mother died when she was quite young. Her father was away a lot, quite absent. Um, she wasn't really allowed to go to school. Her father didn't want to go to her to go to school, and and she just found these ways to challenge these uh, this obstacle course, and she managed to go to school and graduated when she was in her 20s or so and then went to nursing school and she's just like this phenomenal force unstoppable in, in these these in the face of enormous discrimination and now she's in her 70s and and um, she's a it, it, she's now adopted about I don't know she she she's um, she's very involved in supporting um, vulnerable children AIDS orphans, and she's adopted about 20 children herself. She looks after and uh, generates this whole home, and she's always really joyous. It's amazing. And she, a year ago, she got um, given the uh, Unsung Hero Award um, from the Dalai Lama. So for the first time ever, she managed to leave um, South Africa and flew to America. And she went through one of these um, scanning things, and um, as she was approaching it, this American um, immigration officer came up to her and said, can I have your boarding pass? And she just froze. And, and he asked again, she couldn't understand the accent. She turned to her attendant, Jenny, and said, he wants to look at my body parts. <laughs> so. So happy. You know, she, she, and she just was. What was so amazing? I thought, well, she's going to be delighted to go to America. She went to San Francisco, and she, she her whole thing was, no, I just want to go and see the Dalai Lama. You know, I'm just like focused on the Dalai Lama. You know, and she just was like, you know. so she's. And she, she, we're lucky she lives down the road, but she's just such an inspiration. I said, well, I said to her, Abby, how, how did you do that? How did you cope? You know, I'm just like flawed every day. And she said, you know, she said, if I can change something, I will. And if I can't, I'll leave it alone. But she changes a lot. She changes a lot of stuff. Mm. And it's important, it's important for us to have these inspirations, not only remote ones, historical ones, but real flesh and blood ones and people near us. It's important for us to have friends when we meet those edges. You know, we're not alone. 
we might feel alone. This is, uh, this is being human together, that we share, we share this inspiration and we share this struggle. And so in our, in our practice of awakening, it's, it's not about trying to deny the human journey, but to incorporate it, to welcome it, to see it's very much the, uh, the ground through which we grow and integrate our awakening. It takes, a, it, takes a, it takes a lot of patience to be with these when they come up. Like on the, It's been marvelous, actually, on this retreat to see how much everyone is working with you know, things that are not easy to work with. I know it's not only me that's wanted to run away. <laughs> This is not, it's not easy to sit here and, and face this momentum, not only of our personal karma, but what we've inherited, not only through our families, through our ancestors, but globally what we inherit now is intense. We're in a time of great intensity, and, and it's going to get more intense. We have to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to withstand a lot of really very difficult stuff and a lot of uncertainty. In the days when 1950s America (laughs) you know, I mean there's a certain era that's going, gone. We're in a different thing now. Very fast. And you know, there's and, and we're also in a situation where the boundaries are eroding. We're feeling this soup, this stew together of, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's palpable. So it's very, this practice, although it might seem very insignificant, one of the things that Jane Charles says, this practice might seem mundane, but it's preparation to be able to withstand a simple, irritable feeling is important. It's an important, different kind of shift of relationship than acting out or repressing it. To be able to withstand the reality of the moment enables us to, if we're hit by something that can really activate us into violence or fear or overwhelm, then little by little this practice will enable us to withstand that, like a Mr. Mandela. And so able to transform through this power of awareness, a consciousness that would just default to suffering and ignorance, to be able to transform that into true, our true birthright as human beings, our true potential. Wisdom, compassion. It takes a lot of patience. There was um, a wonderful... Yeah, it's not so much one of a very simple teaching that the Buddha gave to once he was um, it's recorded that twelve hundred enlightened beings gathered to hear him give a, a, a Dharma talk for it's still celebrated in um, in Buddhist countries on the full moon of February it's called the Magga Puja and it's um, it re- memorizes this particular gathering a spontaneous gathering of enlightened beings came to hang out with the Buddha. They didn't get an email invitation. They didn't get 
you know, a telephone call. They just knew it was a full moon. Let's just go hang out. Somehow they just kind of gather. And you think, well, what, what would the Buddha teach 1,200 already enlightened disciples? What would he say? Some really subtle kind of esoteric, tantric, far beyond us, elevated, you know, master's teaching. You know, surely... Uh, he would he would give that kind of a thing, but you know, interesting enough, he gave a teaching called the Awada Padimoko, which uh, set out the the ground, the, the the sort of the primary training of, for his disciples to come. But the first line of the of his teaching was that was very simple. He just said, "Patience, <laughs> patient endurance is the highest tapas practice." for burning away or for overcoming that which obstructs the heart. It's just as all your grandmother always told you. (laughs) See, she knew. She was really the Buddha in disguise. So this patience, you know, if if nothing else, if we can't practice, if we can't, do anything. Sometimes just, it's not a dead patience. It's not like, you know, I'm patient because I want everything to shift. It's the, the patience that's willing to bear with the reality of how it is, moment by moment. But not blindly, not blindly suffering, but with applying these moments of attentiveness, applying these moments of awareness welcoming even that which is difficult to bear for the sake of deeply listening into its nature, for the sake of, as they say sometimes in the Chinese school, of crossing over the living beings of the heart through this medicine of awareness, of compassion, of listening, of patience. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home into which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk for a while but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay down all distractions and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.